Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter Mumley. And we're greeting you at the end of May with another beautiful, wonderful poem. This poem is by the poet Rick Barrett, who's really just like a phenomenal poet. Um, He's got three books of poems, the latest of which is called Chord, which the poem that we're going to read comes from. The poem is called Child Holding Potato. And just a little bit more about Barrett. He has a forthcoming collection next year called The Galleons, um, which seems like it's going to be very excellent. He's got a National Endowment of the Arts. He's gotten a Guggenheim. He was a Stegner Fellow. It also happens to be uh, the end of Asian American and Pacific Islanders Heritage Month. Um, and Rick Barrett is was born in the Philippines. And he was raised, I think, in the Bay Area. So this poem is called Child Holding Potato by Rick Barrett. When my sister got her diagnosis, I bought an airplane ticket, but to another city, where I stared at paintings that seemed victorious in their relation to time. The beach from 200 years ago its trunk a palette of mud and guilt. The man with olive black gloves, the sky behind him a glacier of blue light. In their calm landscapes, the saints, still dripping the garden's dew, the bouquets. Holding the rough gold orb of a potato, the child cradled, by the glowing Madonna. Then the paintings I looked at the longest, the bowls of plums and peaches, the lemons, the pomegranates like red earths. In my mouth, the raw starch. In my mouth, the dirt. Woo. Yeah, this is a really interesting poem. Before we get into kind of the the uh, the red the earth the details the gritty dirt uh, <laughs> all right I'll stop myself there before we get into it we usually do a little summary um, this poem is actually pretty sim- uh, simple in terms of like a play by play basically we learn the first line that the speaker's sister has been diagnosed with something I actually separately read an interview with him. Uh, He referenced that his sister was diagnosed with cancer, but I don't think the specifics are sort of necessarily, you don't need to know that. Um, No, you can tell that it's not good because it spurs immediate action, even though we find out that it's not maybe what we assumed after we read those first two lines because of where that first line break falls. But like pretty immediately, there's a diagnosis and there's action. So it just sort of feels bad and immediate. Yeah, yeah. And it's because it's kind of like left at just a diagnosis. The weight of the diagnosis is like enough to spur the speaker. So you can kind of tell just from that that it's pretty a serious diagnosis. So after learning that the speaker (laughs) flies to a city that his sister is not in uh, and basically looks at paintings for the rest of the poem. And the rest of the poem sort of catalogs the, and describes various paintings. 
that the speaker's looking at. Um, and then kind of at the end, there's this little moment in my mouth, the raw starch in my mouth, the dirt, um, which is kind of a, a turn away from the specific paintings and it's describing what I assume to be, you know, the poem is called Child Holding Potato. We have this moment holding the rough gold orb of, the, of a potato, the child cradled by the glowing Madonna. So I, I kind of infer that the raw starch that's kind of in his mouth, in the speaker's mouth at the end of the poem is, is something from the, that painting of the, the child holding the potato. Yeah. And I think that's, that's basically quote unquote, what happens in the poem. Um, although there's a lot happening beneath that. So I guess like, I mean, I think there's really a lot to talk about here, but I, this interview that I found, which was in the rumpus, actually in this, this month in May, um, the interviewer was sort of talking about how they always teach this poem in their class. And one thing that they bring up, the, the interviewer says, my students are fascinated by this poem. It's crisp, spare, elegant lines, the sensuous, ekphrastic details but also by the idea that the speaker would travel to an art museum first at all after receiving news that a family member was ill. And not just any art museum. This is an art museum that you have to get a plane ticket to. Right. So it's right. like not even I got a die. I heard about this like major life event. I called and talked to my sister and then I went to the local art museum to experience, you know, my favorite paintings that I go to all the time as a place of solace. No, this was a very intentional act or a pre-planned trip that didn't get changed because of momentous information that stuck out to me as well because the the way that the lines are laid out they're in couplets and the first says when my sister got her diagnosis line break i bought an airplane ticket and then on the whole next line after you sit with that but to another city where I started paintings that seemed victorious and it continues on from there. But the way that that beginning sets you up, it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> what just happened? What am I doing? Why is this? This is big. It's very interesting. And it also, because of how it's laid out, it, it sets up this subversion of expectations that I think not that explicitly, but a version of that runs through the poem where everything is something else at almost every turn. So you have, even in the descriptions of the paintings, the sky behind him, a glacier of blue light. So the sky becomes a glacier. The rough gold orb of a potato. So this gold orb becomes a potato. Later on, plums and peaches, the lemons, the pomegranates, like red earths. So these fruits then become planets. Everything is becoming something else that you might not expect at every turn in the poem. And I think that's an interesting element to be at least thematically returning to over and over again in terms of what maybe larger statement is the poem trying to make about how we incorporate bad news what art can do for us i'm sort of curious if you have thoughts on what that consistent either subversion or transformation means is it about transforming the news into something more palatable that can be understood literally palatable at the end where the the speaker is talking about putting things in their mouth or or where, where do you go with that? Because I was sort of puzzling over that a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a really good observation. Yeah, about about everything being something else. And and it seems like broadly, we're supposed to broadly, the poem 
is like about something else. Like the whole thing is, you know, the paintings are a substitute for the emotional experience that the speaker is having, right? I mean, there's there's no mention of the sister after the first line. There's no mention of, I thought this, I felt this. The only thing we get of the speaker is at the end of what is like in the speaker's mouth, right? Um, so I think pointing out that even the paintings are always doubling, which are like also already something else, you know, I think, and I think we're clued into that even more, you know, with um, its trunk, a palette of mud and guilt uh, and guilt being not the, I feel guilty, but G-I-L-T, which is like the layer of gold and this kind of the mud and the this layer of gold that has this kind of tension between the the natural earthly substance and then this kind of um, you know we think about uh, the other common use of that word is like in the twenties with like the gilded age you know that's the same kind of word so which is this kind of like decadent artificial time and in the same way this pa these paintings are all of natural things but they're paintings. Um, you know, they're, they're artificial works of art. The, the use of the homonym there is very intentional because it does make you stop and reflect on the fact that you are reading the sound guilt and that you know that this person who received bad news went to another city. They didn't go to the side of the, the ill loved one. And you don't know anything about that relationship, but it, it, I think, is intended to give you a minute of pause and connection there and just thinking like he could have said mud and gold, but he yeah. said guilt. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a really good point. That is a very good point. Yeah. And to your question, I, I sort of was starting to think about an answer to that in the the line, you know, where I stared at paintings that seemed victorious in their relationship, in their relation to time, which is such a wild, like, oh, so good. Like yeah. just the victorious in their relation to time is such an odd phrasing and and so formal too it's so good in so many ways i was at first just like i don't even know what that means but then you know it's it seems to be and as the poem progresses it's like this thing where at least one the basic connection that i was making was like humans are not victorious in their relation to time i mean we're just dying all the time and especially in this situation like the speaker's sisters mortality is like, you know, becoming much more imminent and heightened. And so to look at, you know, paintings, which have a much more permanent, you know, he references the beech tree from 200 years ago. And, you know, in their calm landscapes, the saints, which are still dripping with the garden's dew um, and the bouquets. So these paintings have this kind of much more eternal quality or permanence that is in like stark opposition to the human situation that's at hand. And also I felt like, you know, the sky behind him, a glacier of blue light, like glaciers are like a metaphor for geological time or something. It's, you know, they're made over millions and millions of years and they recede very slowly and you know the ice is just like ancient right i mean they're literal ice and frozen like the phrase frozen in time comes to mind you know like they yeah. are yeah i think that's a really good really good point and so yeah that in this these things being 
other things. I don't think that exactly answers the questions, but there's so many ways to go with it. One is like, maybe it sort of shows what the speaker is thinking about. Like, you know, you could see a bright blue sky and think it looks like many things. And the fact that the speaker is associating it with a glacier of blue light maybe speaks to the speaker's like preoccupation with this victorious time thing uh, that he is not a part of and his sister is not a part of. But it, it also, it does seem to be also just a lot about representation of things generally and their power. And and by making a painting, which is a representation of something, and then making each image also something else, like as you were talking about, the rough gold orb of a potato, having that both be, you're kind of as a reader more aware of the fact of it being a representation and that the speaker is like also doing that kind of representational work or whatever. Um, for what reason, I'm not exactly sure at this point. But yeah, I don't know if that I really just had a lot of random thoughts and I pretended like I was uh, <laughs> putting them all to use to answering your question. I don't really know if I did that, but. <laughs> no, that was very interesting. And I think it does start to get at it because I mean, I don't have an answer either, really not a definitive one by any stretch, but I am glad that you pulled out the the line where I stared at paintings that seemed victorious in their relation to time, because I also really like that line. I think there's so much going on there. Sort of what you were describing, that's the place where I started where, you know, obviously a diagnosis of a human being and human relation to time, none of us are victorious. But thinking more about the line, number one, it does have this weird kind of clinical distancing language in it, which makes sense given where we sort of think the speaker is at the beginning. They're trying to get a little bit of distance from the immediacy of death or of defeat at the hands of time. But I was also reminded because I am who I am and I must be what I am. I, <laughs> I got stuck on the on the fact that it says that seemed victorious in their relation to time. And I love that because in uh, on his second album, Bruce Springsteen has a song <laughs> called Rosalita Come Out Tonight. And it sort of details like young love and everything. And that album and his first one are all these kind of like scattershot portraits of boardwalk life in Asbury Park and, and in and around New York City and stuff and are very different from the way he would sort of write after that. And he points to this song, Rosalita, as being the indication of sort of where he was going. And it has a line in it that he points to as being really like he thinks he nailed something with it, where he says, someday we'll look back on this and it will all seem funny. Not that it will be funny, but that it will seem funny. And <laughs> the the distinction he makes there is that by writing it that way, he didn't minimize the importance of what was going on to the characters in his songs or to himself when he was young. All of that was still, it just, it felt as important as it was when he was 15 or 20 or whatever. But when he looks back on it, he's not going to look back on it and think, oh, that was all stupid and I shouldn't have felt that way. He will acknowledge that it made sense to feel that way then. But with the perspective of an older person or with reflection, it will seem funny. So these paintings in seeming victorious over in their relation to time, they're not actually. They'll still like in the moment in the museum, it feels real that they are victorious over time. Oh, my goodness. This, you know, however many hundreds of years old painting has been kept in pristine condition by a team of curators and 
art restores and it looks beautiful as it did the day it was painted however long ago the beech tree that may have long since decayed in life is you know preserved before my eyes in mud and guilt <laughs> but in fact eventually these paintings too will crumble and disintegrate and so they seem victorious in their relation to time but really everything falls victim to time and i think it's interesting that of all the paintings that the speaker looks at the ones at which he looks the longest then the paintings i looked at longest the bowls of plums and peaches the lemons the pomegranates like red earths number one immediate connection to planets which are super old and seem to defy all time the billions and billions of years old uh don't add us young earth creationists all however many of you listen to us. Yeah, do not subscribe, do not make a review, do not rate us. Steer clear the iTunes store because you need to read a book about evolution and, and stuff. Uh, anyway, like <laughs> the immediate connection that's made is to planets, which are pretty much the oldest things you can think about in the universe. But also these are still lives arrested in time. And they are obviously a bunch of biodegradable stuff, but the kind of painting is a still life. It is life held and halted and kept, you know, in stasis. And I think the fact that that's what the speaker looks at the longest, though not what gives the title to the poem, uh, is also interesting. And I think that the seemed victorious in their relation to time and the still life are sort of in conversation with each other at the two ends of the poem. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Just to confirm what you're thinking, I'm going to bring in Rick Barrett himself. Just in that same interview, yeah, he he kind of addressed some of the questions about that poem. And I just thought it was interesting. He says, you mentioned child holding potato. And I'll say that the agenda of that poem was to trouble the usual agenda found in ekphrastic poems. You know, an ekphrastic is any kind of poem that's, you know, usually about visual art, um, something like that. So art's power to console, to provide spiritual, metaphysical deepening, to create pockets of contemplation, to provide aesthetic pleasure. These are the payoffs that conventionally underwrite the ekphrastic endeavor. But as described in Child Holding Potato, I experienced something, my sister's cancer diagnosis, that art couldn't make right. As someone who puts a lot of stock in art, it was deeply instructive to come against the limits of art to console. And worse, it was terrible to realize that art can serve as a way of deflecting actual experience. Child holding potato is a kind of transcription of those lessons. Which I think like when you're, you, when you're talking about seems victorious, uh, that seem victorious, that feels like it holds like an essential kernel where the speaker goes to these paintings expecting something consoling or something, you know, gratifying about them in that, you know, their lasting works of art or whatever that will help the speaker in this particular time. But kind of by the end, I mean, it's interesting how the way that Barrett talked about it, because it's all of those things are so deeply implied, I think, you know, it's like we have to, there's there's no moment at the end where the poet just goes out and says, what the fuck was I doing here in this dumb museum? Like <laughs> this museum filled with like acrylic 
plums, you know, I should be flying to the city where my sister's in, or I should be uh, da da da. You know, there's no like kind of there's actually there's a a very iconic James Wright poem. It's called like the title. It's one of the classic James Wright titles. It's like 50 million words long, but it's like lying in a a hammock, uh, something, something. Uh, And basically the whole poem is just like describing what the speaker sees while in a hammock and just pretty straightforward description. And then the last line is, I have wasted my life, (laughs) (laughs) which I think really works in that poem, but, but it's this kind of thing where you know, the Barrett in the interview was talking about like worse. It was terrible to realize that art can serve as a way of deflecting actual experience. That kind of lesson, quote unquote, doesn't sort of make its way explicitly into the poem. Um, rather, we're left with in my mouth, the raw starch in my mouth, the dirt, which I mean, I think in this poem, it would be too much to just go out and say it. But to me, it's very interesting that that that's the case. Um, and also just, I guess, thinking about the end, you you sort of brought up this kind of thing where it's like, then, then the paintings I looked at the longest were the still lifes of the fruit. But what's in the mouth at the end is not what he stared at the longest, is rather the potato, that's the title of the poem, of, you know, that the child, you know, being cradled by the Madonna. And I, I feel like that's such a subtle move because... Yeah, it's like it never says, but in my mouth was the raw starch or something. It's just in my mouth is the raw starch. And I feel like reading it quickly, I kind of was like, okay, we're getting fruits and foods. And so starch makes sense. But then I was like, oh, that's actually from a different painting. That's also the title. So yeah, I was just curious what you thought about that move that the poem does. I also thought it was very interesting and sort of wondered about it. It seemed to me, mostly I was wondering about it in relation to the title choice because it puts so much emphasis on it and the fact that it's returned to twice. It's drawn out and above the other works that are viewed so much, even though he goes out of his way to say that it's not what he looked at the longest. But I think sometimes that can be the case where you don't spend the most time with like the piece of art or the artifact that actually you remember most from a visit to a museum or from any uh, experience. I was actually listening to a podcast this morning where the hosts were talking about how like the thing they remember most from a funeral they went to is this one weird thing a family member said that was kind of like funny and stupid unintentionally (laughs) and like that even from experiences like that the thing that you remember most is usually the one weird thing that happened and so for what and for whatever reason that is like the most meaningful or evocative or standout thing and sometimes it can be because it breaks so much with the theme of whatever's going on so like a moment of levity at a funeral even if it's unintentional can be like that's what everybody remembers years later or it can be because for whatever reason, it's what spoke to you then. And so that got me in the mind of like, well, why was this painting what spoke most in that moment? And it could be that it's a child, so new life as opposed to death. But I thought maybe more so than that, it's the fact that the child will age. And I I hesitate with that because like all the fruit and the still lives will rot. It could have just as easily been that, but they're not people. And this is like a person and everything else that's mentioned except for the man with olive black gloves is like 
nature or fruit or something. Most of the stuff in the paintings that the speaker is calling out is like plants and stuff. And the only people are the man with olive black gloves and the child. And I think it's easier to think about change and transformation with the child, especially if child cradled by the glowing Madonna, like, is this the Christ child? And if so, then like transformation and transubstantiation and change and spirituality are all condensed in this child, even though this is not yet, you know, Christ, but like, there's so much going on there then that it made me think that this image maybe most embodies the idea of transformation and change in the pieces of art, which is the idea that the speaker is most resisting. And then when we get to the end of the poem, in my mouth, the raw starch, in my mouth, the dirt, where I go with dirt is like ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Dirt is the biodegraded end of all things with time. It's like that is the inescapable thing that the speaker has been running from. And I sort of saw that a little bit with the child. Um, and because the child embodies so much change and is holding, I guess, a potato, I'm unfamiliar with the specific work being referenced. That one's on me. I'm not enough of an art aficionado to know. But because the child has so much transformation within them, it's kind of transferred then to the potato, which because it's been removed from the ground will pretty soon begin to like rot. And so in a way that I wasn't immediately making the connection with the still lives and with the other paintings, my first thought when I reached the end of the poem is, oh, that child will age and that potato will rot. So that's kind of how I reasoned the the amount of emphasis placed on the child holding the potato and the return to it at the end as the image to embody that like change and decay a little bit. Uh, yeah, I kind of went a lot of places with that one. <laughs> yeah, no, that's wonderful. <laughs> it was though. a little all over the place. Uh, no, that's great. Um, okay, very quickly, I feel like I just found maybe the painting. Oh, uh, hell yeah. Good job, I, Google, Connor. Yeah, I Googled Madonna Child Potato Painting. Nailed it. There is a painting called Madonna and Child by Giovanni Bellini from the late 1480s. And we'll post a picture of it. But yeah, I mean, there's the Madonna and the child and he's holding a little potato. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, pretty much just an accurate rendering but yeah i like bringing up what you what you brought up um about remembering the strange detail it actually reminds me of another rick barrett poem called the blink reflex and it's kind of about like the speaker having this idea that you have three or four great stories in your life kind of thing but then there's this part where the speaker's like i realize that the shard and not the whole comprises a life the image and not the narrative. Otherwise, there's no reason why all I remember of the airplane I took as a child from one country to another is the moist towelette packet we were given with our meal, the wonder and absurdity of it. And the poem goes on. But I feel like that really speaks to your point about those lingering images that stick with you, even if it's like not what you think is the most important. Um, and so in a way, it's like the speaker spent all this time looking at the the plums and the fruits and whatever, and, you know, maybe thought that was that they were the most as a still life victorious in their relation to time or something. But in fact, it was this potato painting that 
he remembered um, and that he sort of I mean, it's interesting because it's it's I'm trying to reconcile the ending with sort of what he was saying in the interview, because to me and, and this actually might be slightly contradictory, but the poem also appeared in the New York Times magazine in like 2015, um, and it was selected by Natasha Trethewey, uh, who we talked about poem letter and is just one of the greats of all time but she had a little blurb like paragraph before the poem and uh, she says rick barrett's poem reminds me how often i've turned to art to contend with difficult knowledge here what stays with the speaker is an image from a single painting the raw starch the dirt feeling finding it's just articulation there which is kind of interesting, but in some ways, so now I feel like it's complicated because in some ways there's two feelings that are happening. There's the feeling that the speaker has about learning the news about her sister and just that whole situation. But then there's kind of the feeling that happens after visiting the museum and looking at the paintings and sort of realizing what maybe like a mistake that to go to the museum or something like that. Um, so it seems like the lingering starch and dirt is, if it's feeling finding it's just articulation, that's less of feeling of, oh, I've seen the painting that has captured how I'm feeling about my sister, maybe. It's like the starch isn't the grief. It's like the starch is, the feeling that kind of regret or something of like i've spent all this time here and not there i guess i don't know i'm curious what you think though i like that i agree with that that's mostly what i think <laughs> um i think it, as you yeah it is interesting how complicated the framing of kind of art's insufficiency is because it still feels like the end feelings grow from the relationship to the art. And the way I have been thinking about this is that I'm not going to name names because I don't want to put any perfectly fine institutions on blast. But I worked with a young guy who has special needs and he ended up going to a semi-independent school. And the school hadn't really worked with people on the autism spectrum before. And so I helped with his transition. And was he, the, the big question is like, was he growing and learning there? Was he continuing to develop skills for independent living in this new place? And the answer was in some ways, yes, but the degree to which that was happening was not because of the supports he was getting, but because the supports were insufficient, he was having to figure out how to do stuff that he normally wouldn't have to. And he was sometimes doing it imperfectly, but all of the growth was in spite of the support that was there, not because of it. And it feels to me like that's how the art is operating here. The answers that the speaker is looking for are not there. And it is because of the lack in the places where the speaker is going that he's ended up finding something he was trying to run from instead. Mm, wow. I like that. The poem is very meticulously crafted. And the the couplets are all, I mean, it's just, I think, mostly just beautifully rhythmic and the sounds are very precise. And pretty much, you know, sometimes we talk about stresses in poetry and how certain, like when, when you talk, you stress 
words differently. That's just how it goes. Even if you're not speaking in Shakespearean iambic pentameter, you know, when I say, when I say, like when is not stressed, but I is stressed. So mostly in this poem, there's like three or four stresses that are happening in the lines. And mostly they're not like clumped together. So for example, the the line and guilt, the man with olive black is one line. Um, the whole thing is it's strunk a palette of mud and guilt, the man with olive black gloves. But in and guilt, the man with olive black, we have this kind of it's pretty actually iambic, you know, it which is. is the term for like non-stress stressed. But up but up but up but up but up. So we have and guilt, and guilt is stressed, and then the man. The man is stressed with olive black. So olive, the first syllable of olive is stressed and then black is stressed. So it's this and guilt the man with olive black. If you wanted to go like say it obnoxiously kind of, but it's, 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 <laughs> but the, the way that it's written, I feel like the one thing that is the whole thing about Shakespearean iambic pentameter, and this is like another rant about school education why it's bad is it's like people learn Stick to in school kids yeah <laughs> like people learn to read it and they hear about they're taught about iambic pentameter and then they speak shakespeare's lines like to be or not to be that is the question and it's like um it is nobler in the mind yeah to and suffer like... the things and arrows it's like all right cool and all the feelings gone. Thank you. All the feelings gone. Yeah. Which like, it's helpful to hear that a couple times just to know what it's about. But the point of Shakespeare, quote unquote, writing in iambic pentameter is that the language that he's using is mostly naturally in iambic pentameter. It's like when you say to be or not to be, you just naturally, by the way that you learn English, stress be and not and be like if you try to do it the opposite way, it's crazy. It's like to be or not to be. It's like, that's, I mean, try it at home, kids. It's going to be hard. Christopher Walken um, does Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so the whole thing with, with meter and stuff is, is not imposing some kind of like thing upon the language it's rather just ordering the the language and the way that you naturally would speak it in a way to create a kind of you know cohesive rhythm or something so i think naturally that line and guilt the man with olive black has a a natural iambic rhythm you don't have to know that this is iambic to say it that way but i think much of much of the poem has either that kind of structure or like there's a lot of like two, this is quite a long explanation, but two unstressed syllables and then a stressed syllable, which has another name that's in Greek that I'm forgetting right now. But like in the first line, when my sister got her diagnosis, the first, I think, stressed syllable is the first syllable of sister. So I agree. Um, but when my are two syllables, so it's like when my sister uh, got her diagnosis. I think a lot of the pieces of this poem are a lot of either iambic things like, um, you know, 
and Guilt, The Man with Olive Black. You can find it lots of places. Um, I bought an airplane ticket. Yep. Um, it's Trunk, A Pallet of Mud. The first two are kind of uh, iambic. Then it switches to where Pallet of Mud, like the P, the pal is stressed and the mud is stressed, but the et and the of are not stressed, which is another common thing in this. Like in in their relation to time, uh, relation, the leish is stressed. The un is probably not stressed and the two is probably not stressed, but time is. So there's this kind of like stressed, not stressed, not stressed, stressed in their relation to time. And that that I think is another common thing. And then there's the thing like when my sister, where there's like non-non-stress, which is just to say the poem has kind of been using these kinds of formations of of stressed and not stressed syllables to create a kind of rhythm. And, you know, I think when I went full nerd, like the most explicitly about this stuff was probably when we talked about The Weather in Space by Tracy K. Smith. But one thing that I talked about there is like the use of rhythm is a way of generating kind of expectation or momentum, and it can be manipulated as a way to signal a turn or emphasize certain things more than others. And so I was noticing my ear was going bing, bing, bing when... (laughs) get that checked out (laughs) i should get that checked out because i kind of was like for a while you know the the poem is i think 20 lines 10 stanzas you know it's like we get our first big thing at the very beginning when my sister got her diagnosis and then it's like i bought a plane ticket and then it's just continuing of describing the painting so i was sort of like there's got to be a turn somewhere right because it's not just going to be totally paintings or like paintings that are just all the same, if that makes sense. And so then we get to this line, holding the rough gold orb of a potato, the child cradled by the glowing Madonna. And this, I feel, is the turn or the beginning of the turn of the poem. In part, I was looking out for it because the poem is called Child Holding Potato. And then I'm like, all right, we're finally getting our potato and our child, et cetera. So I'm being clued into like already by the title, you know, where the heart of it is kind of getting at. And then it's sort of confirmed by the end that that's the moment where that's the moment that the speaker's lingering on. But the rhythm and the sounds are working to sort of subtly also make that moment linger for us. And the way that that's happening is partly because the the sounds get very dense in particular ways. There's a lot of LD sounds in the in that stanza, a lot of O sounds, you know, holding the rough gold orb of a potato, the child cradled, you know, those Ds and those Ls and those Os are really prominent there. But the other thing that's very prominent is the rough gold orb, which to me is three stressed syllables in a row. Um, at least that's the way that I say it in my in my head. Um, holding the rough gold orb of a potato, and then the you know of a potato is like actually three non-stressed, with leading into a stress, which is kind of like you know when like the you're at the orchestra, which I haven't been to an orchestra in a very long time, but the strings are like, kind of like, 
like getting really tense, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and then <laughs> and then there's that release. It's like boom, because that's how songs go and stuff. Um, <laughs> that's kind of what happens in the rhythm, where it's like holding the rough gold orb. It's like stress, 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 and you're like, okay, we've had way too many stresses in way too short of a time. We gotta like get a release, and then it's like of a potato like one two three da, da, da. that rhythmic change which sort of departs i think that's the only time in the poem that there's three stressed syllables in a row and that kind of holding the rough gold orb of a potato that whole thing is like very unique i think um and then coupled with the the rather dense sonic things happening with ld sounds and the O's sort of clues us in before we like really know what's going on, that this is like an important part um, and that this is also like sort of a turn in the poem. So I think it's like very, to me, it's like very expert use of sound to signal this very quiet turn in the poem because it's not like a sudden thing. It's not, I have wasted my life, right? I just thought that was very cool. Um, And then the end's just a great, There's just a lot of great things happening in the end. Um, I mean, we get our sort of our only instance of like repetition in the double in my mouth, the raw starch in my mouth, the red dirt. It's also really cool because the way that it ends up getting laid out on the page, they're right on top of each other. The two repeated parts in my mouth on both lines is almost directly connected. And there's a comma right after both. And it just looks really neat on the page and drives home what's going on sonically, visually. It's a neat little. Yeah, no, that's really true. And it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because then also the whole stanza is like red earths in my mouth, the raw starch, which is the second line in my mouth, the dirt and red earths and raw starch or actually they both start with R and they both have the R. The second word has an R something, you know, in earths it's R T H and then in starch it's R C H. And then the dirt is kind of like an extra little thing that's tacked on, on the last line. That's otherwise like a completely parallel stanza where you have, like four parts. The first part is like red earths, then in my mouth. Then the third part on the second line is the raw starch, then in my mouth, and then the dirt. And the dirt is such a good, like earths to starch to dirt is like the R sounds and the morphing of the, it's almost like the consonants harden slowly. It's like earths is like the, is like much longer and smoother and then starch like the ch is is like in between it's like kind of like the earths but it's a little more of a clip and then dirt like the t is just like Rip, we're out <laughs> <laughs> that's um, a good point that's a good yeah point. i don't know i just feel like that's totally masterful anyway just whoo exquisite the only thing else to say about it is is I feel like the risk that the poem takes in not saying basically anything other than a description (laughs) of paintings and uh, one line of exposition 
about the sister's diagnosis and then having one moment where like at the end it it becomes slightly unreal where this the taste of the starch in the dirt we know is not actually there so that's the only moment where it's like we're departing a little bit from a literal description of what's happening kind of except in the you know similes or figurative descriptions of the paintings but but the risk in not saying anything about the speaker's emotional state is that we're just like okay like you really set me up for something serious and now we looked at paintings and now the poem is done and i don't know what just happened i feel like the poem works because in part the sounds at the end are so intense and sensuous and much more clustered together that your ear is like, oh, this is really, really important or like things are happening here. And that kind of thing, I think, allows the poem not to say what it's would maybe say otherwise, but it kind of it alerts the reader to really read into that ending. And I think the more we're able to read into it, the more affecting it is, I think, uh, for the reader, because we're doing suddenly the imaginative work of encountering this, these images with the knowledge of imagining what it would be like if you just learned, you know, your own sibling was diagnosed with something serious. I totally agree, especially about how much closer together a lot of the sound stuff becomes at the end. I feel like that is a huge momentum aspect to what's going on there. Should we read it again? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Child Holding Potato by Rick Barrett. When my sister got her diagnosis, I bought an airplane ticket, but to another city where I stared at paintings that seemed victorious in their relation to time. The beach from 200 years ago, its trunk a pallet of mud and guilt. The man with olive black gloves, the sky behind him, a glacier of blue light. In their calm landscapes, the saints, still dripping the garden's dew, the bouquets. Holding the rough gold orb of a potato, the child cradled by the glowing Madonna. Then the paintings I looked at the longest, the bowls of plums and peaches, the lemons, the pomegranates like red earths. In my mouth, the raw starch. In my mouth, the dirt. so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know. 
tweet at us or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.